Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Today we interview Dr. DeLomba, an excision surgeon who's been in private practice in Denton, Texas, since 1986. He's performed over 7,300 endometriosis surgeries, so he has a lot of insight on endometriosis. Dr. DeLumba offers a second look surgery for adhesions just a few days after his original excision surgery. Today he brings his knowledge to this episode to answer various questions related to adhesions. Dr. DeLumba also joined us in episode 106 to speak about robotic excision surgery. So if you missed that, please check it out. Hey, Dr. DeLumba, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast today to talk about adhesions. We are so happy to have you here. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And um, hopefully I can at least give you my viewpoint and, and some information that may or may not help in the future. Yeah, well, we're really excited because in episode 106, we actually interviewed Dr. Jalamba about robotic surgery. So that was really great to hear your expertise and insights and opinions on that. Um, just to give a little bit of background, You've had over 7,000 endometriosis surgeries that you've done, uh, 2,300 robotic and about 5,000 standard laparoscopy. And look at me go. I got that memorized. Wow. And it's because it's just so impressive. And you are an excision surgeon. So just want to be clear here that you do endometriosis excision surgery. I've been doing this a long time and, and have developed different opinions about many different things and things have to make sense to me to to be valid so let's start with the topic of adhesions dr delumba can you tell us what are adhesions adhesions are the normal healing process of the body whether it's on the inside of your abdomen outside your abdomen anywhere on your body there are adhesions, scarring, and fibrosis that takes place when you are injured in any way. And I've actually seen people on, online say that endometriosis is the same thing as adhesions. No. Adhesions are a normal healing process. And that's what makes it so difficult in my mind to deal with this. And why, in my opinion, also, it's worse than endometriosis because endometriosis is abnormal and we can address it. How you stop the body from healing is the whole issue that we're dealing with. You know, I think with endometriosis too, adhesions are, as you said, adhesions are a normal part of the healing process. And then adhesions are also a, like a normal part of the endometriosis disease process. And one of the theories behind that is that endometriosis lesions are wounds that are undergoing injury and repair. 
So like one of the theories around this is that, you know, the endometriosis lesions, they cause tissue damage in the surrounding tissue and they destabilize the surrounding capillaries and that causes bleeding in the surrounding tissue. And then this tissue damage, you know, then the body comes in and tries to heal that wound, right? So with endometriosis, we often can have, depending on the person, this adhesion formation because they're basically thought to be like wounds that are getting injured and healing. And this process is repeating itself over and over and over and over and over for years. Well, yes, you are correct in, in, in what you're stating, but I think we're making more into it than we really have to. Because if I take a splinter and put it in your finger, it's going to cause an inflammation, the same as endometriosis cells will do, which are just glands and stroma. But as we talk later on on the receptors, you're going to see genetically they're different. So these are not normal cells. These are cells that shouldn't be there. Our body's trying to get rid of it. So we can sit there and make all these scientific things on what it does, but all it is is a splinter. All it is is an injury, and many things cause adhesions, just like an infection can cause adhesions. Burns can cause adhesions. Surgery can cause adhesions. Endometriosis can cause adhesions. Any inflammatory process, but also a normal process can sometimes cause adhesions called ovulation. Why? Well, because when an egg pops out, you got a raw surface. And what can come with that egg? Sometimes blood. And what initiates healing? Blood. You have a whole cascade of events, which we'll, we'll get into a little bit later. But you have the red blood cells, platelets, blood clots, fibrin, fibrinogen, inflammatory process. And it takes all the way out to six months to complete. But the primary healing's in the first week, week and a half. So yes, we can talk about all these different things, all these different factors that cause, you know, NK cells, and we call, talk about this and that, but it's just, these cells should not be there, and our body's just trying to get rid of it. So I don't think for, for our purposes, we need to get into the depth of that you were describing before. It is an injury to the body. That is it. It's tissue that shouldn't be there or injury. Is there a difference between me taking a knife and cutting my arm or burning my arm with fire? I'm going to get scars. I'm going to get fibrosis. I'm going to get adhesions. It's an injury, and it's not just specific to endometriosis. We can try and make it that way, but it is our body fixing something that shouldn't be there. I think some of us are wondering, you know, when it has to do with adhesions, when we say like adhesions, it's hard to have a picture in our mind of what adhesions are. So can you kind of tell us like, what are they? I think a lot of us know that they can like stick our organs together, that they can cause like strictures in our bowel. But can you tell us a little bit about like how adhesions maybe look or how they can affect us? Are they different thicknesses? Like, There are three things that we have, adhesions, scarring, and fibrosis. It's just the different way that they heal. Adhesions are when things are stuck together, like a stamp in an envelope. If people remember what stamp and envelopes are, there's, there's two movies that actually, to me, portray adhesions very well. Dumb and Dumber and Christmas Story. Both of those movies, if you've never seen Christmas Story, it's a little boy that puts his tongue on a pole in the winter and it's cold and his tongue sticks. 
Um, and the same thing in Dumb and Dumber. Many, many people have seen it, even in other countries. It's fascinating how many people have seen that movie. So he's up in the mountain, puts his tongue in the pole, and he sticks. And why is it funny? Why are we laughing at that? Because if you try and pull it off, it's going to hurt. Yeah, you laugh at it in a movie, but when they're your adhesions, um, some patients can look up a online in 2015, a fireman in New York had to have a face transplant because he was, was in a fire, was severely burned, multiple, multiple surgeries because the skin starts to contract and pull. And so they actually did a whole face transplant. And so you look up New York City fireman face transplant and you'll, they'll show the before and after. Because he was going blind as the the fibrosis started to squeeze. He couldn't see out of his eye, no matter how many surgeries they did, because the body continued to heal. Burn victims, look at a burn on the outside of, on your arm or your hands. And that tissue over time, it's fibrosis. It's scarring. I've got a big scar on my arm. That's all three things, adhesions, scarring, and fibrosis are all the same thing. It's just different aspects of it. I don't know if that's explained it enough to you. I think so. I think, yeah, it's hard to conceptualize things as a layperson when we're not scientists or, you know, when we haven't seen the body anatomy. But I mean, my understanding is, yeah, like you said, adhesions are a normal part of the healing process. They're a normal bodily function, I guess you would say. And then, yeah, there. I think we all know what a scar is because we've all had scars. And then fibrosis, like you said, is the tissue is getting like, well, more fibrotic. So what does that mean? Like, I don't know, tighter, you know, more taut. Thicker, yes. Thicker, pulling together, like less flexible. And then it sounds like adhesions is when like that fibrosis is actually like sticking one thing to another. So that's when like my bowel is stuck to my ovary or my bowel is stuck to my vaginal wall or that guy in Dumb and Dumber, his tongue is stuck to the ski pole. You're absolutely correct. And, you know, there's also on adhesions, it can be bands. And that's why the surprising thing is 30 to 60% of bowel obstruction, it's when the intestines get blocked, is from adhesions, scarring, fibrosis. But, but it's bands and it's like the intestines are always moving. And if they get trapped in a, an adhesion, a band, then the bowel swells and it can't come out of that. And that ends up in a surgery because that is, you know, a life-threatening problem. Then I've seen patients lose their kidney from endometriosis because, yeah, when you cut it out, it says rare cells of endometriosis. But what happens is it's the fibrosis around it that just starts to squeeze. The same thing even with bowel. Yes, there's endometriosis eroding into the bowel, but you also have fibrosis around it that's just starting to squeeze it and it's harder to get bowel through these decreased caliber areas. So that's the problem with adhesions. Yes, endometriosis is horrible, horrible. Wish it wasn't around. But it's the scarring, the healing process of having something on the inside of your abdomen that shouldn't be there is what makes it so bad. Do you think with endometriosis, there's typically a tendency for fibrosis? Like, do you think that as the disease progresses, the lesions become more and more fibrotic over time? They can. I've seen patients with endometriosis everywhere that had no adhesions, no fibrosis. 
no scarring other than locally where the where the lesions are. So yes, they can, and some of some of this is our genetic makeup on whether how we're going to scar, whether they're going to be a nice looking scar, bad looking scar. And this actually leads me to something we may talk about at the end about my my classmate from medical school in 2019 won the Nobel Prize in medicine. And in 17, I wrote him uh, an email and we went back and forth and I actually gave him something to think about, <laughs> which was fascinating. Like, wait, wait. At the time, he was a potential Nobel Prize winner. He did some studies. When I realized what the studies showed, I'm like, he's going to get the Nobel. And sure enough, one year later, he did. And it has to do with adhesion scarring and fibrosis. And I'll get into that later, but not right now, because that, that's still at least a year or two to three away. It's fascinating. The world, the world is going to change. I have read in some you know, research articles about endometriosis, and they talk about like tissue remodeling. So when you were talking about how in some cases there could be like a very small lesion that actually has glands and stroma, but then like around it can be, it can be like a huge fibrotic knot or like bulk or whatever. Is that what it's referring to when it's talking about tissue remodeling? Yes, that's actually the, the whole aspect of adhesions. It's scarring, fibrosis, adhesions. And over time, they do what we call organize because initially they're very thin and filmy the majority and and they start to build a scaffolding um that's actually happens in the first couple days which is amazing actually when i did my um fireside chat at the summit with dr young i put a little article up there just a, a blurb on the healing process you start healing the instant you're injured no matter what it is fall down cut yourself you're healing right away and it takes about a week for that to really complete that primary healing. And after that week, it's just architectural changes for the next six months. So again, it's, yes, it's the, the lesion that started the injury is endometriosis. But what then continues on from there is the scaffolding, the remodeling, all of that, of the, the tissue surrounding it. Um, I guess that leads me to another question is how fast do adhesions form? So as you said, that like over time, they continue that like remodeling, but how fast uh, do adhesions form? I actually have heard doctors say, oh, you don't get adhesions for about eight months. I'm like, what? And then I hear other doctors, they publish books and they just say things, you know, like, oh, my patients don't get adhesions or 5% of my patients get adhesions. I'm like, so they don't heal. I mean, it's like spaghetti and meatballs in there after surgery. It's all in there touching. You don't think there's a potential of these things sticking. Um, it's just amazing what we say and what we do without actually thinking. So as I had mentioned earlier, the instant there's an injury, say, say surgery, when you cut something, that healing starts right then. Red blood cells, platelets, the whole cascade. But by day three, and this is from um, Gynecology and Obstetrics 2009. They have preventing adhesions in obstetrics and gynecology surgery. They begin immediately. By day three, you're already forming the, the foundation of these advancing adhesions. 
By day five, you're starting to see increased vascularity and inflammatory cells. And this is their statement, not mine. No new adhesions form from that surgery, from that injury, after day seven. Now, I think that's a little harsh to say no new. It might be day eight, but it's not going to be much longer than that because everybody's a little bit different. But when I go in on, and we'll talk about this later, when I go back in on day five, organs are stuck. And I have the same crew, and all of us are fascinated how quickly these adhesions form. And, and then we have doctors saying that they don't get adhesions. No, most of the data out there says 80% of patients get adhesions. They either form or reform from the first surgery. And that's what I've seen, about 80%. Whether it's my surgery, somebody else's surgery, all our patients have to heal. And if you're going to heal, 80% organs are going to either stick or the surface is going to be fibrotic or scarring, all of that. So let's get into one of my pain points, which is that there are some doctors who say that surgery for endometriosis should be the last resort, right? They're like, it should be the last resort because surgery can form adhesions. But we know that a lot of patients who have advanced stages of endometriosis often have a lot of adhesions before surgery because as we just established, you know, adhesions are part of the endometriosis process. I'm just wondering, what do you think of this idea that we hear from a lot of doctors that is basically surgery should be the last resort for the patient because of the adhesions? Well, <laughs> how can I say something without offending every doctor out there, including myself? Um, <laughs> in my opinion, endometriosis is a surgical disease. If you have endometriosis, you can wish it away. You can try and give hormones to make it go away. You can do whatever you want. It's not going to go away unless you cut it out, excise it. Usually the people that say don't you know, use surgery as a last resort usually aren't surgeons or good surgeons. They're trying to do everything they can to avoid surgery. I want to get a patient as early in the process as I can because there's going to be less disease. There's going to be less other organs stuck together. And I want to get rid of that disease. I can't think of any other disease out there that we wait until it gets worse <laughs> before we operate. Okay. Um, I've, I've, I've started firestorm arguments um, over, over that kind of comment because, you know, like, oh, we get great videos and show what a great surgeon we are by delaying surgery. You have to cut into ureters, do bowel resections, cut into the bladder. I'm like, yeah, so we can come up here and show these great videos. This is wonderful. You know, while our patients are suffering for decades, let's, why not treat the disease as early as we can, like we would almost any other disease? Yeah, I agree. I think it's really frustrating. Like you said, I think a, a lot of us have seen that there's a lot of rhetoric around, like, Within endometriosis, there's so many different schools of thoughts. There's so many different opinions. There's so many doctors who are non-experts, and there's very few who are actual experts. And so, you know, what I've seen is that a lot of times when we see this kind of rhetoric about, oh, well, surgery is the last resort for ABC, XYZ reason, um, as you said, first of all, it fails to acknowledge that endometriosis is a surgical disease, so that makes no sense. And second of all, some of this reasoning like, 
oh, but the adhesions, it's like, you know, endometriosis causes adhesions, right? And going back to what you said earlier about how, for example, you can have adhesions on the bowel without even having bowel endometriosis, like without having bowel lesions themselves, you can have adhesions on the bowel. I did have both, like I had both endo lesions on the bowel, but I also had adhesions that had narrowed a portion of my bowel to like a third of its width. And so, you know, I had like a partial bowel obstruction just from the adhesions alone of this disease. Unfortunately, though, I think when we see people who doctors who look like they have, they hold authority in this disease, who look like they hold knowledge, we may not know that they're non-experts, right? And so we as a layperson, we might be being told by our doctor, oh no, we cannot operate because it's going to cause you all those adhesions. And if we don't have this knowledge to know, well, um, endometriosis causes adhesions, like, hello, then of course we could go along with what the doctor says, not realizing that probably one of the reasons, the main reason why they don't want to operate is just because they lack that skill level and cannot safely operate on the patient. You're absolutely correct. And one of the things that I always start off when I talk to my patients is, you don't have to agree with me. You don't have to believe me, but I urge you to keep an open mind because I still think what I'm saying about the adhesions is making sense. Now, you made a comment about um, surgery causes adhesions, and that is a correct statement, but it is not a complete statement. There are things that you can do. There's treatment plans that you can do to try to decrease organs from sticking together. You're not going to prevent healing, but what you're going to do, hopefully, is prevent organs from sticking together because we may talk about it later, but everybody talks about endobelly. Endobelly. I personally think that endobelly, not every single person with endobelly, is mostly from adhesions because there's fermentation going on in large bowel. And the typical scenario that I see is somebody wakes up in the morning with um, a flat belly. They get up, they start to move around, they eat, they drink, they do things. 45 minutes to an hour after they get up and eat and drink, they look like they're pregnant. Their belly's swollen. And I'm sitting here going, wait, in my mind, blaming endometriosis is not the answer to that. Because my theory is that one, and I, and I only did, did it because I grew up in an all-Italian neighborhood in Pittsburgh, where all my friends made wine in their basement, their parents. But we would sneak down as teens, drink it, and the fermenting grapes would bubble. If you bump fermentation, it's going to release gas. And the large bowel is nothing but bacteria and fermentation. So when it's stuck, normally it worked, the bowel works by peristalsis. So it squeezes, another part squeezes, another part squeezes. And before you know it, it's moving food and waste down. But that smooth muscle, if it's stuck either to itself or to another organ, it's trying to squeeze and it's not doing it. The other part's squeezing. And sometimes people will get severe cramps with that. And the stuff eventually will push it down. So oftentimes you'll see some constipation and maybe eventually some loose stool along with it because that can get by easier. So when it's stirring up that bacteria with the fermentation, it's a releasing gas and you bloat. And the typical scenario is 45 minutes to an hour afterwards and sometimes a lot of cramping with it. 
um, because it's called mass effect. When we eat or drink, if you have a dog or an animal, you feed it, it goes poop, right? And the same thing, we, we eat or drink, uh, it's called mass effect. It moves our intestines in a synchronized manner. We got 30 feet in there. It's going to take some time to get to that spot. And of course, it's anecdotal, but when you cut those adhesions to the bowel, it functions. They don't blow. And if they come back, they blow. I know that's not proof. It's not scientific proof. But when you do it enough times, you kind of know what it is it isn't. I found for myself that the endo belly um, had like two different causes for me. One of the causes was what you mentioned. So prior to excision, after I'd had endo symptoms for about like 14 years or so, when I was about 30, I would eat and then my stomach would bloat to a capacity that I had never seen. It was extremely painful. And I could actually, so I'd have to lay down because I, I mean, I could not move. I could not even like put a shirt on or off at that time. Like I just, I could not uh, move from how much excruciating pain it was. And something interesting is that during that time, and this is actually what prompted me to go back and search for help because I got to a point where I just like gave up because they were all like, this is normal, you know, take a birth control. And this, this is kind of what got me to be like, no, I think something really serious is going on in my body because then I would lay down and I could actually hear my intestines gurgling and I could actually feel the peristalsis, which I don't normally feel, but as it turns out, I had like a partial bowel blockage. So this really happened when I ate some of those like foods that cause like a lot of bulk or like a lot of gas inside of me, but I could feel my intestines gurgling and trying to have peristalsis and, and like making these noises and the bloat was enormous. And then it would take like over a day of fasting for it to like go down. And then I would just be releasing gas. And when I say releasing gas, I don't just mean like a fart here or there. I mean like 30 solid seconds of air, just like, like when you let air out of a balloon. Anyway, so that was very fascinating. And once I had excision surgery and the bowel blockage was removed and all the adhesions were removed, that type of bloating went away for me. Um, But I will say that I actually did have SIBO and it wasn't until I had my SIBO treated and it took about five treatments because it kept relapsing and recurring um, that now I do have like the flat, you know, no more endo belly. So I think there can be multiple factors depending on the patient. And and I did say it's not all because, um, again, I do mention SIBO, SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, because it can cause bloating, but not the bloating. It's 45 minutes to an hour afterwards and it's squeezing and you do. It's just it's triggered by the intestines moving. So. So again, not every bloating, people can bloat from some of their hormones. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why people bloat. And, and I don't know, did you have pain when it was in that area? When this, when the bile was trying to peristalse? Yeah, and the pain was outrageous. Okay. I mean, Horrific. I could not even believe that the, the pain, it was a very different pain than like my period pain. Like it was, it was very different from that kind of endometriosis pain. It was like a very specific, intestinal pain and I got to a point where I only ate smoothies and soups because you know I I just nothing could pass through my bowels and of course I didn't know at the time I had a partial bowel blockage I found out later during surgery and the doctor said 
I don't know how you were going to the bathroom. And I was like, well, that's validating. But yeah, so, and it's sad because, you know, these are very serious situations. And unfortunately, for many of us, we go to the doctor and we tell these stories and that they're just like, oh, that's like a normal part of your, <laughs> that's like normal. You're like, um, I don't think so. You know, or they say all the different things like, oh, you should just lose weight or like, you just need to eat healthier, whatever that means. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's good that we're talking about these things. I think a lot of people have, first of all, a lot of questions, but second of all, different people have endo belly, different people have different kinds of pain. Um, so it's really good to try to talk about these things. So people are more aware of what's going on with their body. I agree. And, you know, and that's why I'm so passionate about adhesions is the same passion as with endometriosis because they go hand in hand and you can't talk about one without the other. It's just like doctors saying, let me give you birth control pills for endometriosis to sit there and say, my patients don't get adhesions after surgery. To me, it's the same. We're ignoring a huge, huge portion of the, the pain. And that's why oftentimes the pain from adhesions is more chronic when you start off with endometriosis, it's a little more cyclic. And then the pain as you get older gets longer and longer. And then it's hurting all the time. That's from the adhesion aspect, the fibrosis, the scarring. But the, it was initiated from the endometriosis. So you got to get rid of the disease process. But you also have to address the adhesions from that and also from the surgery too. So that's really interesting what you said about the pain. And I know some of us are wondering, is there any particular type of pain that could indicate adhesions? Or is it often hard to tell if, if our pain is coming from endometriosis or from adhesions? Well, again, having been doing this for like 37 years, um, you start to get some impressions. <laughs> it takes us a long time to beat things into our head. Here are some fascinating aspects about, in my opinion, and again, anecdotal, is the types of pain. If somebody has an ovary stuck to their pelvic sidewall, many of those patients have hip pain. Why? Well, the difference from where the hip joint is and where the ovary stuck is about maybe a quarter inch, half inch at the most. And then when that ovary is stuck, if it's stuck, and they're trying to ovulate, it's going to be extremely painful because it's trying to pry that off. Just like in the beginning when we talked about, you know, Dumb and Dumber and the Christmas story with the tongue on the pole, you're trying to pull that ovary off as the egg grows on that ovary to more than an inch. So, of course, that's going to it's going to cause pain. It's trying to pry it off. It hurts. So yes, that's a specific type of pain. Then we already talked about the bowel pain. One of the reasons, in my opinion, that bowel pain hurts so badly is that it's smooth muscle and it's not smart muscle. It will just continue to keep trying to squeeze to the point where it cramps. And, the, and that pain, I've experienced it. I was in Nigeria in 2016 and came back with a parasite. <laughs> and all I remember is laying on the floor not even able to think with the sweat pouring off me. I, I couldn't think. And, you know, just praying for some relief. And I thought to myself, if my patients have a fraction of this pain, how do they live from day to day? 
And trust me, I've had a lot of surgeries. I've had my chest cracked. I've had my, you know, knee surgery. I've had, you know, a lot of surgeries. So I know what pain is. <laughs> Bile pain to me is some of the worst that there ever is. And when you have adhesions or stuck bowel to the ovary, anything. And of course, we already explained about the bloating with adhesions there. Certainly, if the bowel is stuck, called obliterated cul-de-sac to the back of the uterus, you're trying to get poop through a hairpin turn. It's going to hurt. That's the thing. The types of adhesions there that you'll see is mostly to the ovaries that you'll see specific pain in those areas. But other than that, it just gets chronic more and more and more because those adhesions don't go away. Endometriosis may be a little more cyclic in its nature. So to me, when you're hurting all the time, there's usually going to be adhesions in there. Thank you for giving your opinion and your insight on that. And also, thank you for validating just how painful endometriosis is because, I mean, we, I think we know that the NHS stated it, it is one of the top 20 most painful conditions. Um, the NHS stated this, I think, in 2018, and it's just been really validating as endometriosis patients because we're constantly told, no, that pain is normal. No, you have a low pain threshold, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, this pain will throw you to the ground and incapacitate you. So thank you for, for recognizing our pain and also our strength. I guess since we're on the subject of pain, sometimes I hear from patients who they've already had excision. And then maybe like a year or two later, they start like complaining of pain, right? And they're having like constant pelvic pain oftentimes. So, you know, they go to the doctor, they get an ultrasound, the ultrasound seems to show signs of adhesions, right? Seems to indicate that there could be adhesions in the pelvis. Of course, you know, this is case by case, but do you think that adhesions are a good reason to operate, to reoperate on a patient? Because I hear from a lot of patients, their doctors saying like, well, you know, we don't know if endo recurred or not, but it's just adhesions. It's no big deal. Like we don't operate for just adhesions. General surgeons and therefore gynecologists believe this. They are taught that unless there's complete or partial bowel obstructions, adhesions do not cause pain. So everybody runs with that. But trust me, if you see somebody that has adhesions, you know the pain that they're in. To say don't operate on somebody with adhesions, if their life is interfered with, you better be offering surgery. That doesn't mean you tell them to have surgery. Say, here's one of the things we can do. I can't guarantee your pain will go away or that the adhesions won't come back. But we have to make you so that you're functional. Your life, you can do some normal functions. You can't just say, oh, well, no, more surgery is going to cause more adhesions. Just live with them. Really? <laughs> Come on. So let's talk a little bit about surgical techniques to help prevent adhesions. But actually, my first question to you is that we know that one of the big issues with ablation surgery, which is the superficial burning of the surface area of the endometriosis, one of the big issues with ablation is that it can cause a lot of scar tissue. And then of course that scar tissue can trap or can bury the endometriosis that you know was left behind because ablation is not removing the endo at the root. Um, and then that scar tissue can trap 
endometriosis, and that can make subsequent surgeries more complex, more complicated. So I guess first, my question is, does ablation tend to cause more adhesions than excision? Yes and no, because both of them are injuries to the body, whether it's a burn or you excise it. You have to understand some of the thought process on how ablation was validated. It was actually from a good friend of mine in the UK, <laughs> Mr. Jeremy Wright. And over there, when you're a surgeon, you're Mr., by the way. And actually, I just saw him when I was over there, along with when I saw Peter. So he published a paper back in, I think it was 2005 or 2006. Um, one of the first ones. It was a small paper comparing mild to moderate endometriosis, burning patients, the ablation versus excision. Now you have to understand Mr. Wright is and was a, an excision specialist. So when he burned, ablated, he ablated like he was excising. So of course the outcomes were the same. Wasn't talking about severe disease, it was just mild to moderate by appearance, not symptoms, by appearance. So in my opinion, he got rid of the disease the same. There's a second thing that they didn't take into account were adhesions. You know, you're going to probably get adhesions in both of those because both of those areas have to heal. The third thing is, you know, myself and Dr. Mosbrooker and, and uh, Dr. from Ohio, uh, her name right off the bat, we did a study based on my retrospective study that showed the same thing. With 3D, we saw 25 to 40% more endometriosis with three, three dimension on the camera. So if you're using 2D, which they did, maybe he missed 25% on both sides. And of course, they're going to have same outcomes. Now, when you ablate, if there are cells or part of the cell below where you burn, say you just didn't get deep enough, that top fibrosis, it scars. So if there's any active endometriosis underneath it, what's it going to do? It's going to go through the scar or through that fresh tissue path of least resistance. So in my opinion, it might make it more deep endometriosis, invasive endometriosis, because it can't come to the surface because it's, it's fibrotic, it's scarred on the surface. So those are my takes on ablation versus excision, whether, whether they cause adhesions or not. Both are injuries. So they're probably going to have almost the same amount of adhesions as you might have, but the ablation may have better chance of not getting rid of the disease. So my understanding with that is that the surgical technique can play a big role in adhesion formation. Do you think that there are surgical techniques that can help minimize adhesion formation, such as things like you know, not leaving denuded surfaces or preventing blood loss, irrigation, things like that? Yes and no. Because <laughs> if you're going to cut tissue, you're going to have some bleeding. There are people that say they don't have bleeding and you can say anything you want, but when you cut tissue, you're going to have some bleeding. That's just... <laughs> so yes, technique does play a role. Having done other surgeries, even like C-sections early in my career, you could see when one individual did a C-section versus other individuals, everything was scarred with this other individual and none with the others. So yes, technique plays a role. So when you're cutting out endometriosis, 
or even if you're burning endometriosis, which I don't advocate, but some may listen to this and do this. You want to get rid of all the disease. Look at it like a cancer. Okay, It's not cancer, but look at it as if it's a cancer. You don't die from endometriosis. You just feel like dying. So you have to cut some normal tissue because you want to make sure you get all the disease. Same thing with burning. You want to make sure that you burn some normal tissue also and not just try to get to the edge. You don't want to take too much normal tissue because now that area has to heal. There are doctors in the world and it started off in Iceland and then it, it came to the U.S. where they do total peritoneal excision. Peritoneal stripping. as it's... You know, just like take it all. <laughs> like, okay, well, okay, I have a lesion on my arm. Let's just take all the skin off of all my entire body. What do you think that's going to do? Is it going to scar on the outside? Absolutely. Why do they think it's not going to do it on the inside? Is it special in there? No, our bodies heal. I think there are many experts who frown upon total peritoneal excision or also known as peritoneal stripping due to that reason that why take, why take healthy tissue when you can just take a healthy margin around the endometriosis? Yeah, thank you for talking about that and, and also that there is surgical techniques that we can do to try to prevent adhesions and how you've seen, you know, when you see some surgeries from the same surgeon, it's just like tons of adhesions and the other surgeons that have less adhesions. And obviously adhesion formation is going to depend on the person and the genetics, but it can also depend on the surgical techniques that one employs in the operating room. And like you said, you can't prevent all adhesions, but we can try to take measures to lessen the chance of adhesions. Absolutely. And don't forget, we need to talk about treatment plan because there's things after that, besides that, like accuracy and precision, getting rid of all the disease, taking some normal, not too much normal, but um, certainly technique plays a role too. You don't want to be rough with the tissue, even if it's robotic or laparoscopic or even open surgery. What do you think about barriers for adhesion prevention? What are barriers and do you think they're all the same or is there a lot of data on them that you're aware of? Sadly, there's not a lot of data, which is kind of ironic is when I was in medical school, basically a first year medical student, because where I went to medical school, University of Pennsylvania, they put us in the clinics in your first year. So I happened to be on an OBGYN rotation and my assignment was adhesions, barriers. And, and so pretty much almost everything out there does not work. There's a lot of barriers. So just like I had described earlier with the movie Dumb and Dumber and the movie Christmas Story, that if you put your tongue on the pole and it sticks, if you put a piece of cardboard between the tongue and the pole, it won't stick. And I actually mentioned cardboard for a reason, because one of the two products that are indicated to prevent adhesions is cardboard. And we have doctors using it today. They got approval in the 1990s, not 1890s, the 1990s to prevent adhesions laparoscopically. It's called intercede, I-N-T-E-R-C-E-E-D. If you look it up, it's regenerated cellulose, plant cell wall. And if you look those up, it's cardboard. But they did some studies, got FDA approval, and now everybody thinks, let me use it because it's cheap. But it's worse than super glue. I would rather somebody not use any barrier than use intercede. So I've used everything. 
I used Arista, which was made from potatoes. I was, <laughs> I used uh, Coseal, which is a polyethylene glycol polymer. And I thought that was great, but it, no, so many patients had so many inflammatory responses to it. Different gels. Um, oh my gosh. It's just, I used PRP. PRP is great for healing. It has an abundance of this inflammatory cell called interleukin-8, which is inflammatory. You don't want inflammatory cells. That's what initiates all of our healing cascade and why we scar. I don't want that. Then there's ADEPT, <laughs> which is the other product indicated. And I know some of the docs that were involved in the studies, and even they said it didn't work. But it's got a higher levels of glucose in it. And back in the, like the 70s and stuff like that, they were using high levels of glucose and were preventing adhesions. But no wounds healed. <laughs> so, yeah, it worked, but nothing healed. <laughs> so that didn't go. So I think that was the thought process behind the ADEPT, because we used to float organs back late 80s, early 90s on floating it with like a liter of fluid in the abdomen. And, that, and that's what this ADEPT is, like a liter of fluid with higher levels of glucose. It doesn't work because you absorb it. It's gone in a day. In a day. And you need something to last at least through that seven days, at least, because even if you interrupt that healing process, it still has some areas that it's inflammatory cells or the red blood cells, platelets, blood clots, fibrin, fibrinogen, inflammation, that whole cascade. So the theory is by interrupting that somehow with a barrier, floating, anything, it might work. But what I've been using for about the last 10 years, amniotic tissue. I have a small case series published. It's not very big because you know, adhesions, nobody does second looks, which we'll talk about. But certainly barriers are great. The part around the baby, the amniotic sac, is slippery. The under part called the chorion stimulates stem cells below it, which are uh, faster healing. And there's an abundance of interleukin 1 and 10, which are anti-inflammatories. Less inflammation, faster healing. The other part's slippery. Sounds pretty good. And it takes about two weeks to a month to absorb it. And they get it from C-section moms. So it works, but it's very expensive. A piece that's four by six centimeters and two and a half centimeters is an inch. So it's not very big. is $1,800. So most patients go, I can't afford it because insurance companies don't want to pay for it. Insurance companies pay for it for eye adhesions. They call it epithelial disruption. It's an adhesion, but it's a piece this big, so it's probably like $100. But they won't pay it for the epithelial <laughs> adhesions that we're dealing with inside the abdomen, where you sometimes need four or five pieces to try and act as a barrier so the, the organs don't stick together. But it's not perfect. Not perfect. But there are other things that I do besides barriers that I think help decrease organs from sticking together. Yeah, that's kind of the general consensus I've heard in different talks about adhesions is that none of the barrier methods are perfect. Different doctors are using different barrier methods, um, different products. But as you said, adhesions are a normal part of the healing process anyway. So when you had that adhesion that worked so well that you couldn't even heal, the body couldn't even heal its wound, um, that's pretty funny. Why don't you tell us about some of the other things that you do to try to prevent adhesions? Well, the next is 
I use heated and humidified carbon dioxide. There's only a couple companies out there that do make the insufflators, the device that blows your abdomen up during surgery, that have that. The inside of your abdomen is wet and warm. Like 99 degrees, 100% humidity, it's wet and warm. A lot of times you'll have imaging, whether it's an ultrasound, MRI, and they'll go, oh, trace free fluid. Because it's wet, it's going to be. So if say you have a three or four hour surgery and you're blowing cold, dry carbon dioxide in there, what do you think it's going to do to the non-surgical areas? It's going to dry it out. It's like holding your eye down and waving your hand in front of it. Do that for two to three hours. What do you think it's going to do to that, that tissue that you're holding down? It's going to become inflamed. And so that's, in my opinion, one of the big reasons why patients have chest and shoulder pain after laparoscopic robotic or just standard laparoscopic surgery because of that cold, dry carbon dioxide drying out the diaphragm and the phrenic nerve is there. Again, it's anecdotal. I haven't done a study. It's really hard to do for that. But um, I see a little bit less chest and shoulder pain from the carbon dioxide using heated and humidified versus if I have done that in the past and used the cold dry. And again, it was just something I've noticed that there seemed to be less adhesions to areas where I didn't even operate on. So that is, that's one of the other techniques. The last technique, which I think is the most important, is what's called a second look laparoscopy. People go, what's that? Well, since laparoscopy was invented, doctors have been doing second look laparoscopies. Some of our infertility docs did it to see how effective some of the treatments were. Our any oncologists do it. Our general surgeons are still doing it to see if the bowel is dead. So there's a lot of reasons to do it. And I didn't come up with this concept. Dr. Jansen, I think, was one of the first ones in the Scandinavian countries. And then Dr. Krasinski in, in Germany was one of the, of the guys that really started to put forth the second look idea. And the timing of it is key. The timing of that second look. Because I published a paper back in 1996 the, on, on spilled gallstones causing pelvic pain. And it was so inflamed in there when I got out like 45 gallstones in the pelvis with endometriosis that I had to do a second look. I waited longer than a week, um, but I went back and then got 75 when the inflammation was less. So a lot of spilled gallstones. So second looks are here. You know, everybody goes, are they going to get paid for? Well, yeah, <laughs> they're going to get paid for. It's not a, a new technique. So what you do is within three to seven days, you go back in and look for any adhesions that may have formed or reformed from the first surgery. Why? As I said, you want to interrupt that cascade of events that I've been talking about from the making an adhesion, from healing. So if organs are stuck together and you pull it apart during that time, theoretically, it's not going to jump back to the start because it hasn't completed its healing process. If you wait past a week, week and a half, you're wasting your time. And I used to do seven days. Logistically, it worked with my surgical schedule, <laughs> Wednesday, Wednesday, Friday, Friday. But then I found that if I moved it back to five days, it seemed to be a little more effective. I get a little bit greater percentage. And as I had mentioned earlier, my whole crew, myself, I've been doing this for a long time. 
And I look in there and I get, I can't believe how fast these adhesions form. How fast they form. And even when they form fast, doesn't mean you're going to have symptoms right away. Some of my patients can tell. I ask them, usually they're feeling really good for like two days after surgery. If I do it on a Friday, Saturday, they feel pretty good. Sunday, they feel good. Monday morning, pretty good. By Monday evening, they're starting to feel something. Tuesday, they're like, oh, yeah, it's there. And Wednesday morning, they're like, yeah, there's something right here on this. And they point, go in there. A lot of times there's adhesions. But they might not feel it. The typical scenario when the adhesions form is three to six months. They feel pretty good. And then they start to feel things by eight months to a year. They're right back to where they were. And they go, my endo's back. Three to six months. I'm not a very good expert if the endo's there in three to six months, okay? <laughs> Although we have seen it in a month, endometriosis, after it's been excised from experts in a month. It's fascinating, this disease, how little we know about it. So back to the second look. So the timing is crucial. So when you get in there, most of the time I'm using some high pressure water, hydro dissection, or just pulling it apart. And I think Dr. Krasinski in Germany used four days. But again, three to seven is key. And the closer you get to seven, I think the percentage goes back down a little bit. So it turns out that about 80% of patients that, that have surgery either form or reform adhesions. So they might have had adhesions before, cut them, and 80%. There's 20% that don't. And you don't know who it's going to be. I just did one this morning, the second look. I thought for sure she was going to have adhesions. I did a lot of dissection in there. There were no adhesions. I was shocked. And they had barrier. They had placenta there that I was going to use. Didn't have to use it because it's not stuck. There's no adhesions. So again, 80%. That doesn't mean all 80% will hurt in the future. But a huge percentage of those will. In the Scandinavian countries... They did a third look, which we wouldn't be able to get through any studies here, to see how effective the second look was. And it turns out that 70% did not grow or regrow, but 30% did. So even when you pull it apart, it's not a guarantee. But by using accuracy and precision, the heat and humidified carbon dioxide barrier and the second look, I can maybe get it to the mid-70s. It will never be higher than that. Your body is going to do things in spite of what we try to do and prevent the adhesions. So to me, the second look is such a, you know, if anybody has chronic pain and there's adhesions, why would you not want to do a second look? Because again, the argument from other doctors is don't have any more surgeries. You're just going to get adhesions. And that is a correct statement. But if you do the things that I just described, you're going to decrease that by maybe 70%. And if your life is so interfered with that you're opting for surgery, you can't function normally, give me that 70%. I'm sorry. And I don't tell my patients to do it. Not with a 25 to 30% failure. I tell them, you make that decision. How is this interfering with your mental functions? And, and, and sometimes I've seen patients where they got relief and then they're back. And then all of a sudden, they didn't grow anymore. Or, or they didn't reform after the, the second look. Again, we don't know the body as well as we think we do. So those are the things that I do. Is it perfect? No. 
but it gives patients a lot of hope. And I wish more and more doctors would, would try it. And you have to understand that some of the studies that were done on second looks for adhesions went past seven to 10 days. And everybody's going to get adhesions. <laughs> it's going to reform. You have to do it before seven days. You just have to. Thank you so much for explaining about that. So basically, you're doing the second look surgery. And what you're doing is you're going in and you're actually looking for adhesions. And then you said you're using like some different techniques to basically separate or remove the adhesions that are forming. Really one of the goals of going in there, um, and as you said, like it matters when you go in, right? So now you're going in at five days because you've seen like that's the best time to go in and see when these adhesions are forming. But one of the goals of going in is to try to separate those adhesions. Um, that doesn't mean that the patient won't continue to form adhesions in the future, but at least you can get in there and like break up some of those, those adhesions that are in there now. And you saw even with the, in the, the places where they can do a third look surgery, that patients still have adhesions forming even after the second look was done and adhesions were broken up. So as we keep saying, adhesions, they are just like, they are a normal part of the healing process. And it's really depending on, as you said, surgical techniques and things that we're doing, but also it's dependent on the person um, and their genetics and like their capacity to form adhesions. Correct. Yeah, all your statement was, was spot on. So do you think if you go in to do the second look and you don't see any adhesions that the patient, it's likely they won't form adhesions? Because you, as you said, adhesions usually form within like that first week. Or is it just really, it's hard to tell because, you know, the body's complex. In general, they won't. But if their ovaries are still there and functioning, they're going to ovulate, which could make ovaries stick again. And then if there's any endometriosis either potentially missed or new endometriosis or anything, that in itself can increase the adhesion formation or, you know, an appendicitis or another sur surgery for someone else. So, yeah, it, it doesn't mean that you will never have an adhesion. It just means that from what we did that one time, we gave it a 70 75% chance of not forming or reforming, 25 to 30% that it will. But that, again, I, I wish it was perfect. It is not. But it's, in my opinion, those things that I've said, you have to have a plan. You can't just say, oh, cut your adhesions, you're good to go. And then it's all touching in there as soon as you take the air out. No. I, I've seen so many patients tell me that. You have to have a plan. So as you were saying, second look surgery happens in other specialties, but it's not something that's very common in endometriosis. So I was wondering... You know, well, I do know that with your second look surgery, you're charging a lower, a much lower price. It's not as complex of a surgery. It's usually pretty quick. Do the patients have to do bowel prep again or they don't have to do that? No bowel prep unless they want to, because we already know what's there and there's no cutting. I'm not cutting anything because it's just like, you know, if you could put super glue on your fingers and you stick it together, if you pull it off, if you wait till it's solidified, it's not coming apart, but if you pull it apart, you can. And that's the whole theory is we're pulling it apart before it finishes its whole cascade of events. And therefore it's not smart healing. And it may not in 77% of the time, jump back to the beginning. Therefore they may not have as many adhesions. 
So what about ovarian suspension to try to prevent adhesions? What is ovarian suspension and do you use it or what do you think of it? I I did use it and I stopped because um, I have a small video on Facebook somewhere. It's like a minute video where at the end of the case, there were no adhesions and I suspended both ovaries. And then I went back. That's when I was doing a week, went back a week. And I succeeded in keeping the ovary from not sticking to the pelvic sidewall because it was all raw underneath there. The bowel stuck to the sidewall and stuck to the ovary one week. And you can watch me separate them. Like some of the omentum attached to the bowel grew into the stitch. And it wasn't like that at the end of the case, one week. And I'm like, I succeeded, but I failed. So we're trying to suspend them by doing it. And of course, one doctor does it for a day. I don't know if that's enough time. You know, would three days be better? I don't know. But by a week, it was like they were glued together. So suspending them does not prevent adhesions. And it can be very painful because it's like a stuck ovary. That's how you learn that ovary stuck hurt. Because when it's stitched, it can hurt. <laughs> so I stopped doing it because the, the success that I was getting didn't warrant it because I was doing second looks to see how beneficial it was. So you suspend it and you cut it and you pull it out and you think, I'm a great doctor, but you don't know what the inside looks like because you're not doing a second look. You have no concept. You don't know if the barrier is working. You don't know any of that because you don't look. So you're guessing about what your outcome is. So last question in reference to adhesions is, can hormonal suppression help with adhesions? Can taking hormones either prevent adhesions, slow adhesions, or remove the existing adhesions that a person has? Well, it's never going to remove adhesion that you have. I mean, that's so. If I take hormones, my scar on my arm is going to go away. No, you know, so that is not a <laughs> a valid aspect. This is like a question to answer a question. If you get cut on your arm, whether I'm taking hormones or not, will it make a difference? Probably not. In general, hormones will, will not prevent adhesions from forming. I know there were some studies back in the like late '80s, early '90s. That, that there were less adhesions in a menopausal state. But um, I, I don't think that that's really a valid, valid aspect. Having gone in on second looks, you, you see what's there or not. So if they're in menopause, I see the same amount of adhesions, whether they're on hormones, artificial, their own. No, to me, you heal if you heal. Yeah, definitely. I think some doctors say like, oh, if you know, take take hormonal suppression to prevent adhesions or prevent this or that. And that's not a valid reason to um, be going on these medications that, you know, can for a lot of people potentially have side effects that are very unbearable and intolerable. Um, The reason for taking hormonal suppression would be to manage your symptoms, not to prevent something like adhesions. I've got my classmates discovery that I want to talk about because it's key to this. Okay. So in 2017, I'm at my med school reunion and I walk in and there's one of my classmates, his name's Dr. Greg Semenza at Johns Hopkins, up sitting with the dean on the, on the stage in the auditorium. So all the alumni are back there and I went, what's Greg doing up there? They said, oh, he got the Lasker Award. Of course, 80% of people that get the Lasker Award get the Nobel Prize. If I had to look up the Lasker Award, I didn't know what it was. And I said, well, what did he get it for? And he, they went, he discovered HIF-1, hypoxia-inducing factor 1. 
what's that? So I looked it up. That was May of 17. So from May to September, I did some research. And there was a doctor up in Michigan, Dr. Michael Diamond. He does research on pigs for adhesions. Because they make adhesions more than humans. So we use them as a model. So he took HIF-1 and genetically turned it on in the pig, denuded the peritoneum, like a TPE, total peritoneal excision, right? Took it all out, went back in, no adhesions, no scar tissue, no fibrosis anywhere. Normal peritoneum, impossible. It has to be one of those three. Might look normal, but it's going to have a different appearance under the microscope. This was normal. All of a sudden, I'm sitting here reading this article, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. Bing. And it triggered a memory from 1991 when I used to do obstetrics, OB. I can't even spell it now. I had a patient who the baby had a, at the time, it was a 100% fatal problem, but it was a good outcome. The baby had a diaphragmatic hernia on the left side. So what happens is during development, the intestines migrate in. Babies are born, they can't breathe. By the time you recognize it, there's nothing you can do. But since we did an ultrasound in like 30 weeks, found it, we were going to send her to Loma Linda, California, because they were one of the first places in 1991 to do fetal surgery. They said, she's too far along. We didn't have ECMO in Denton or heart lung machine. I sent her to Dallas, delivered the baby. And about eight years ago, surprisingly, the mom brought her by, showed us the big scar, good outcome. But when I was talking to Loma Linda, they said, here's an interesting fact. And actually, Dr. Dr. Jung mentioned this in, in Florida. Um, he kind of got the, the timing different. But, but if you operate on a fetus before 24 weeks, they're born without a scar. If you operate after 24 weeks, they have a scar. And nobody's figured it out. Some people think it's the amniotic fluid. I'm like, well, there's amniotic fluid at 25 weeks. Why did it work at 24 and not at 25 of making scars? And all of a sudden I went, oh my gosh, I just figured it out. So I wrote my classmate an email. I told him I don't do research. <laughs> I'm not trying to steal his discoveries or anything like that. I said, I just have adhesions and I want to see what you think about this. I said, for one, before 24 weeks, the fetal skin is so thin there's no capillaries. There's no blood flow. It's hypoxic. HIF-1 is on genetically. So we just grow normal tissue, normal skin. If you take a salamander and you pull the tail off, a normal tail grows back. It's not scarred, not fibrotic. It's normal because genetically they may have their HIF-1 on. So he answered me in 20 minutes. And that was key. Because he says, you're spot on on the no scarring. We never thought of hypoxia in the fetus. Now, you have to understand, my classmate, Dr. Semenza, has eight professorships at Johns Hopkins. One of them's pediatrics. I'm like, wait, you need somebody from Ganton to give you this thought process? But he said, we've already started a collaboration with a general surgeon where we're taking rats and we're burning and cutting the skin, okay? And genetically, there's a way chemically of now genetically turning that on. Remember, that was 20 minutes. So a few months go by, it's April. 
2018. And I write my email. So Greg, how'd it go? Can you give me some information? So 20 minutes goes by, 20 hours, 20 days, a month goes by and I figured he's too busy. All of a sudden I get an email with two stupid sentences. And the first is, thanks for the email. If one may play a role in endometriosis. It was from China. I didn't think it was that compelling. Two lousy sentences. If one may play a role in endometriosis, and thanks for the email. Great. You didn't say anything about the study. And I suddenly went, he did. He could have said, I can't tell you if it was good or bad. If it was bad, he would have told me. What he can't tell me is it worked. But by mentioning HIF-1, he answered me that it worked. So then I extrapolated in my mind. I'm like, oh my gosh, think about a fetus developing in utero. Nobody thinks of hypoxia in a fetus. We think they're well oxygenated. Well, let's look at the heart. Is there any blood flow when the heart develops? Nope. There's no blood. No blood flow yet. No, because the heart's not pumping yet. Heart muscle's growing. So HIF-1 is on. It's hypoxic. There's no blood flow to it. But when we're an adult and you damage the heart, HIF-1 is off, so we scar. That's why a heart attack is bad. Okay? Strokes, spinal cord, almost Every organ development is most likely developing in a hypoxic environment. The skin, the brain, the spinal cord, the heart. All of a sudden I went, he's going to get the Nobel Prize. Because when you extrapolate, you know, if you have a chemical, somebody has a heart attack, you might be able to inject that. And maybe that muscle will generate or regenerate like it was as a fetus a year and a few months go by. Boom, the Nobel Prize for Dr. Greg Semenza in medicine and physiology, right? So um, I've been looking at research. There's an article from 2021 talking about unlocking mammalian regeneration with HIF-1 alpha. It's the longest article I've ever read, and it's in Science Direct. They now have some gels that are coming out. I think they have some injections that are coming out. So they've all gone through some phase trials and they're eventually going to be on the market. I don't know what the side effects are. I don't know what the cost is going to be, but here's an example in the study. They took a diabetic wound and they rubbed the gel on. I don't know. I it didn't say how long or if it did, I didn't read it, how long they had to do it, but it grew back as normal skin, healthier than the skin around it, not scarred because it turned HIF-1 on. And we, we generate or regenerate versus scarring, healing, fibrosis, and adhesions. So my theory is, is somebody's going to have surgery. I don't know how, whether it's a gel, an injection, how it's going to get there. You have surgery, you might get this, and all the tissue will grow back normal. I don't know what the side effects are. You don't want to grow another head. might be good for Halloween, but it's not good for any other <laughs> day of the year. So... You know, there's a, there's, this is coming down the pike. I mean, this is going to be here. So we may be able to injure the body and put this, these, these chemicals on to turn HIF-1 on so that our body acts as if it was a fetus. Um, so when I was talking to the doc from India at, a, at the dinner in Florida or at the lunch at Florida, he was telling about his classmate or friend of his 
that's doing this research, they're in trying to increase blood flow for spinal injuries. I'm like, no, you might not want to do that because HIF-1 turns off and you're going to scar. Maybe what you want to do is find a way to make that hypoxic, that injury, and HIF-1 will turn on and it will regenerate. All you have to do is look at some wound healing that we have like for muscles, athletes, or even when they were doing spinal injuries, they were uh, trying to treat people on the, on the floor of the, of the um, athletic event, a spinal injury with very, very cold IV. So the blood vessels constrict, less blood flow, hypoxic. And they were seeing some results, but as soon as they did that, then they would let it go and it would warm up and if one would turn off and it would scar. Athletes now, hot, cold, hot, cold. So when it's cold, you get vasoconstriction. So for injuries and cells, you might want cold there to keep the, the blood vessels constricted. But you can't do that forever. So the better ideal way is to either inject or use gels or whatever way to get that material to that area to um, turn HIF-1 on genetic. It's going to change the world. You have a heart attack, you get this. Have a stroke, get this. Spinal injury, burn victims. It's going to change the world. So I wanted to go through that because I think it's, it's key to let people know there are things coming down the pipe. Hopefully this actually coming to the surgery, to the operating room in the future to be available like as a product that surgeons can use that can help the patient with healing post-surgery. And that would certainly be wonderful to have for endometriosis. And I think that's nice because, you know, we have, it's just, there's always so much gloom and doom with endometriosis. There's ah, there's so much to be frustrated and angry about, but it's nice to, to know that like there, there is research happening. There is things coming on the horizon. It may not be for five, 10, 15 years, but I think one of the main things is that you know, we don't want our future generations to suffer in the way that we have because of this horrible disease. So thank you for sharing that. Bye.